all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where we talk to founders, entrepreneurs, investors about all things value creation in startups and early stage companies. Today, I am super excited to be with one of my favorite people uh, here in Phoenix. Her name is Susan Corditz. She is the founder and CEO of Catalytic Health Partners. She's probably one of the most knowledgeable people that I know within the healthcare system. Uh, she runs a health uh, healthcare tech-enabled service, and I'm going to let her talk a little bit more about that. Uh, Susan, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you very much, David. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, yeah, and you, you know, you you drove a long way to get here in 115 degree heat, so I really appreciate <laughs> that. No problem. I survived. So, Susan, your model and the business that you have today is probably one of the most innovative um, and most impactful things that I've seen in healthcare, and uh, you know, from a from an outcomes perspective. So. I would love to hear a little bit about kind of what is Catalytic Health Partners and, um, you know, what what are are the clients you serve and how are you different from the traditional kind of uh, healthcare systems today in in Arizona? Yeah, so Catalytic Health Partners is a value-based contracting company. So we only work uh, on a situation in which we are at risk for our populations and their outcomes. So therefore, we focus clearly on those outcomes and trying to make sure we generate those. And so in addition to our PMPM, we're getting a shared savings. So if we don't save the health plan money while we are improving the outcomes for our members, we really don't make any money. So we run in the company at break even, and then that shared savings is how we actually have profits. So that's different than most people want to take on. <laughs> I'd say the other huge difference is we take on Medicaid members. So that's really our primary target market is Medicaid. We do some Uh, Medicare Advantage members and dual eligibles, but we really focus on that Medicaid market, taking care of the highest cost, highest risk individuals. So typically the top one to three percent highest cost members for Medicaid. Wow. So again, we shift the risk way far to the right and uh, work hard at that to make sure we're making a big difference. And so when you say at risk, we're talking about value-based care. So for the audience that doesn't know, can you tell a little bit about the healthcare system today and the transition from that fee-for-service model and the value-based care model? Sure. So in fee-for-service, you're actually, I, in my opinion, incentivized for people really not to be well, right? Mm-hmm. So it's sick care. You get paid when people show up because there's something wrong. In value-based agreements where you're at risk, you are working hard to try to help people have health care. So you want them to be healthy, you want them to be doing well, you want them to be stable. And so there's a really big difference in the delivery of those two. Our model is very intensive, so we are seeing individuals many times, uh, but we're not getting paid for many times. We're getting paid only for their outcomes. So a really big difference in how those two models are incentivized. Likewise, because we believe so much in health, we define health a bit uh, more broadly, I guess, than some, in that we believe very strongly in social stability first, 
Then behavioral health and physical health stability, understanding that Maslow's hierarchy really drives our lives. And if we're not socially stable, we don't have housing, we don't have water, we don't have electricity in the 115 degree weather in Arizona, that we won't do well. So really focusing hard on that. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a fundamental business model shift that that has occurred and that that occurred during um like obamacare or the mm-hmm. uh what was affordable care act affordable what? care yeah there's aca there's aco <laughs> there's, there's tons of acronyms <laughs> in this business so uh, the, the affordable care act and um so there's this giant business model shift that's happening for fee for service to value-based care so how like that's like turning like the titanic right i mean how do you how do you get that to happen who makes up these plans and like who designs them and who puts them into you know into into execution mode i think that's a really good question and i think it's what's really slowing the system down and making the change is because the healthcare system is dependent upon entrepreneurs like myself to come up with an innovative idea propose it and to live up to it so that it's successful Uh, The health plans themselves or the government is very unlikely to be able to generate those innovative plans. Um, First and foremost, they don't know That would be like the DMV, like trying to like fix traffic, right? Like (laughs) That's right. Here's how you could be able to get from point A to B quickly, (laughs) but it wouldn't be this way. (laughs) Not down that street, at least. Uh, So that's the thing, right? I mean, they don't know. They have the state processes they have in place. Additionally, I think as operators of a company, I don't know that you'd want them to because they you need to know what you're willing to be at risk for and what you're willing to take on. And for somebody else to define that for you would probably be very low probability of success for you. So, you know, I really think people need to sit down and challenge themselves to say, how could I do it differently? And likewise, when you're in these value-based models to understand that you're not going to win more than everybody else because if you go to the table trying to win everything you're not going to get anything so you have to sit down and really be collaborative in that relationship which I feel like has been a not the way it's been in the past with healthcare. it's been a us versus them who can win the most game mm-hmm. and so like when we think about the um this shift like we have medicare which is like this big like ball of cheese right and everyone's trying to eat this eat this eat this cheese like this mice you know just not everyone's attacking the medicare cheese and then there's parts of this cheese that are kind of broken off into into commercial groups or um you know or the, what they call like the medicare advantage plans to manage the wellness and then so essentially what you're telling me is that it's really up to entrepreneurs to they say hey we're, we want we want value-based care go figure it out and then you know basically the entrepreneurs then have to bring it to the cheese holders and say <laughs> that, right. and say, the cheese gatekeepers <laughs> and they say this is what we want to do and then you're kind of in this cheese dance absolutely and i think you know again as well at least from my perspective you know i believe in sitting down and trying to be fair right and saying hey here's what i'm willing to do here's what i think it's worth to me uh trying to be as specific as you can and defining that So that when the other party says, well, no, I don't want to pay that much for it or whatever that story might be, then you understand what you can take off of the table so that you can still deliver what you want to deliver, but not, you know, and be able to give something up. So I'm not much of a person who believes that, you know, you want to negotiate on price. You should negotiate on features of what you're providing and still making sure that you end up whole. Because I also think that's where people end up upside down in many business models, but certainly in value-based care. 
because you let the other parties saying, well, I'll pay you less and I'll do this and I'll do that, and you end up getting less and less, but then you can't deliver the care you're supposed to, and then we end up where we were under capitation. So capitation is similar in some regards, as some people would see it as value-based care, but we didn't worry about outcomes in capitation. So the party who got the cap fee tried to deliver as little care as they could so that they could keep everything as profits. And that didn't work. We ended up in a really big mess, if you remember the 80s when that happened. Uh, But, you know, I think, again, coming to the table, understanding what you can deliver and what's going to be as part of that bucket. And then when the other party says, but that's not affordable, then you figuring out what you can take away so that you can come up with something reasonable without it being in the end that you've limited care to an individual and therefore had poor outcomes. And so when you talk about capitation, you're talking about HMOs? Well, actually, HMOs kind of existed at the same time of capitation, but capitation was, uh, the, I would say, the beginning of us going to manage care. So in capitation, you could go to a health plan, and they would say to a provider group, like, we'll pay you X dollars to take care of these individuals. And typically, they were large systems, hospital systems, different systems. And they would take on that cap. And, you know, you're getting $25 million to take care of, you know, these 50,000 people. You're thinking, oh, I've got lots of money here. But then what happened was the care, there was no um, outcomes based to it. So the costs uh, were highly managed. So you were trying to, you know, keep costs as low as possible. So you kept as much of the money as you could in your pocket. I mean, you would think through these, all these different types of, like, incentive variations, these perverted incentive variations, that they would finally come up to something that wasn't so egregious, right? <laughs> Like, two or three different models of just, like, well, how can we just not be super greedy? Yeah. Um, that's really crazy. So, capitation didn't work. No. Right? And so, now uh, ACA came out, and... So Medicare says to the cheese holders and to themselves, right, because they are they are a payer as well, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, we need to get involved in this. Entrepreneurs, go figure it out. Come bring it back to us. So, like, and, and, and what you were saying is that, you know, you have to come to the table with something that's, um, that's uh, amicable to both sides, which is, I mean, you're not buying a car. Right. Right. Like, <laughs> this, is some, this is something that's very complex and, you know, there's risk on both sides. So how, how does the, the payer model work, and why are they incentivized to do this, and why isn't this really taken off? Yeah, so the payer model uh, works. I mean, they get a set fee from the government, so depending upon uh, the population that they're managed. And so in Arizona, you know, through Access, we have, you know, various plans. So the seven plans have applied to access. They won the bid, and the population is divided up by an algorithm, um, and they're given selected members. Now, a member has the right to opt to a different plan in their initial enrollment phase in every year, but still, by algorithm, they try to keep those plans pretty well adjusted so that they have a risk pool that's manageable. And then they're getting paid a certain fee to manage those. So, you know, the health plans have a typical fee-for-service model there, but they're also looking for innovation because they, you know, it's not like they get to self-select, like I'm not going to take John, I'm going to take Jane instead. Oh, no, I want Tim. At the end of the day, others select them, and they don't have any criteria under Medicaid to be able to say, well, I want to adjust my risk pool. They don't have that option. So you're 
taking all comers, and you've got to manage that risk. So why do they want something innovative and different? Well, they need to have other ways of managing the risk since they can't use their own selection processes to manage that risk, like a commercial plan. Interesting. And so over time, like how do they, how do, why don't they just keep increasing their, like for the cheese maker, whoever's making the cheese, i.e. the Fed, right? <laughs> We're printing money at this point. So how do, like, so it's a set amount of money they get per, per year from the government to pay. And then plus, I guess, I guess they have two customers, right? They've got the premium customer for the premiums from the consumers, and then they have the government subsidy, right? Well, under Medicaid, of course, there's no premium from the customer. It's all from the government. Um, so they don't really have a means of adjusting that. In fact, they've set it based on their bid. So, and those bids are good for many years. So typically it's three to five years, sometimes seven, and you've bid out what this is going to be. So that's what you're going to get paid mm-hmm. for those individuals. And there's some carve-outs and there's some you know extraordinary costs that are underwritten. But again, those are the outside way outside of the bell curves right the tiny tails that you're getting something fringe on. cases yeah COVID. So, yeah yeah well some you know there's some adjustments certainly for covid uh but in general this is the amount of money you're going to get paid and it's their job to manage it mm-hmm. so it's hard right they don't they want good outcomes they're not trying to take that on the back of the you know consumer that they're here to serve and yet they don't have a way of increasing their fees. So that can be a real tug, you know, back and forth. And so what about the commercial plans? No, the commercial plans can just increase rates, right? So mm-hmm. what they do, and they, but they can also select, right? Interesting. So, okay. Yeah, you apply for insurance and you have to disclose various, you know, disease processes that you have uh, or, or didn't have, whatever. If you're applying individually, of course, as a group, there's some, you know, there's a bigger a pool and you don't have to disclose quite as much, but then they adjust the premium based upon the risk in the pool. Mm-hmm. So that's how they get paid, right? So that risk-adjusted pool is like, well, your premium just went up $50 this month, or you know, and it's going to be that much for the rest of the year when you renew. Well, that was because your risk pool went up. So they have a way of offsetting their risk a little differently than government-funded plans. Yeah, and then, then, then they also get the, the money from Medicare as well. Oh, yes. If they're a Medicare Advantage If they're a Medicare plan. Advantage plan. But Medicare Advantage plans can't change the fee to the customer. That's mm-hmm. set. Okay. So those are set. Um, they can't change it either. So nobody is getting both fees. You're either getting government funding or you're getting consumer fees. Got it. Okay. And so, um, yeah, I, I think I was reading somewhere that the premiums for United Healthcare, um, you know, because it's publicly traded, sure. is just like exorbitantly inflated. Right, over the last 15, 20 years. So what is that from? Yeah, it's, well, I mean, again, they submit their rates based upon risk, right? And saying, okay, here's the risk adjustment, and here's what our rates go up. I mean, goodness, is running a company, take a deep breath every year when they go to renew our premiums to see what's going to be next and how much it's going to go up. You know, you'll have people, you know, say theirs goes up, I mean, a good day, 5%, about all the way up to 20 and 30%, depending upon your risk pool. So that can be quite exorbitant for a company to try to ex- absorb, or their employees, right? So many uh, employers, their, cust- their employees are paying 100% of the premium. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when that premium is, you know, 550 to, you know, $700 a month, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. And that's for the individual. Forget the family. Mm-hmm. So you can take a pretty significant uh, income to support individual insurance if it's not provided by your employer. 
Mm-hmm. And so just year over year, it just goes up, and you know they're not really charging the government, right? So it, that's you know that that really is they're just going with what the market can actually charge. But on the Medicare Advantage side, I mean, they really can just say, well, costs are going up. Well, they can, um, but they can't really say costs are going up. But they, again, it's a risk-adjusted factor. So they go and say, here is the risk of my pool, and there's an entire algorithm that the government runs against the data for every Medicare Advantage or Medicare member, not even Medicare Advantage member, but every Medicare member, and then says, here's the risk, and then they have a calculated fee for that risk that they pay, and that's how they get their adjusted payment. Okay, interesting. So you, look, you see what I do, Susan? I really just grab somebody, and I just want to ask them a bunch of questions, and then I just say it's for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if we're actually recording this. <laughs> um, so tell me, why is it so difficult to get these get this value-based care stuff implemented? And, you know, I mean, what I, I think I read something, it's like upwards of like 20% of, of, of dollars are value-based, you know, compared to fee-for-service. Like, why is it so difficult to, to turn the ship? Well, first and foremost, I mean, you're talking about decades of a payment structure that businesses have been, and an entire industry has been built around. So that makes it really hard. Um, you know, not too many people are like me and willing to take the risk of every other provider that you don't control and have nothing to do with to mm-hmm. say, I'll take on that risk as well, and I can figure out how to manage that. Uh, so there's a lot of components to it. Um, and how do you unwind it, right? Our hospital systems are based on DRG payments uh, for the Medicare uh, side. And, you know, What's just some, DRG payments? Uh, Diagnostic-related groups. So they give a specific fee um, in payment based on a given diagnosis. So mm-hmm. you say the person came in with congestive heart failure, it pays you a flat fee for that as the hospital. And then you have readmissions, you have all these consumptions of um, you know, care. And very few people want to be at risk for that. So, and then how do you carve up the risk? So is David going to be at risk for the same thing that Susan's going to be at risk for? Well, David runs a hospital, Susan runs the provider group, uh, well, how do we split that risk? How does that happen? It gets to be really kind of entangled. I mean, you can even think of it for the investment group. You know, does two people own a part of the same shares? Well, no, we, I have my shares and you have your shares. Okay, well, what, what is your share? Right. What contributed to the problem and what contributed to the success, right? That's and you, right. <laughs> and that's where everybody's tugging, right, of, you know, all, everybody has some contributory factor. And, you know, in as much as you want to be – part of the upside so everything is great when things are winning you also have to be ready to take on part of the downside and that's where it gets to be a little iffy and lots of people are anxious and don't want to take on that downside Mm -hmm. want to avoid that because it can be quite expensive do you think if you were to say administratively if there were some plans that everybody could benefit from Yet there were still a, a subset of the population of, of physicians and, and, and hospital groups that were just too, I would say, behind the times, right, of, of fee-for-service, like, and you were to accelerate the value-based care. Where do you think we would end up today? Would, from 20% to 50%? Do you think we go from 20% to 30%? Where do you think we would land? I actually think it would be pretty slow, honestly, because, again, you have health plans, then the government, who on their side have to do a number of maturations themselves to try to figure out, like, who contributed to this win, how do we get there, and how are they going to divide up those payments? Because you go back to your 
you know, cheese and everybody is saying, well, I know, but I already took a bite out of that piece of cheese. Well, I don't care. I'm going to take a bite of it too. Mm-hmm. And it can get really messy. So I think until we can come up with a more global way of doing it, we're going to struggle to get there one piece at a time. Um, ideally, you would have a system in which, you know, everybody was participating in a value-based way, and everybody who touched somebody would touch a big enough pool of somebody's that they could, you know, benefit from an upside and a downside. So until you get to 100%, I think we're going to struggle along that journey. And actually, the higher percentage you have of value-based agreements, the stickier and messier it's going to get. Mm-hmm. Do you think we should just throw away the soup and just do val- or universal health care? Would that just fix everything? Well, I don't know if it'd fix everything, but it certainly <laughs> would overcome a lot of hurdles for sure. Um, and, you know, again, I, I feel very strongly that everybody deserves good health care. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you take care of the sickest among us, and, you know, then everybody will be better off. So... It definitely has some benefits, but, you know, it has its downsides, too. So I feel like, you know, universal health care would certainly answer a number of pieces, probably not in isolation by itself, but with some other um, alternatives or additional services could be um, a big benefit to the population as a whole. And so there's a lot of different players who are kind of playing in this value-based care kind of arena. There's, um, uh, you know, the ACOs, which are accountable care mm-hmm. organizations. And then there's, you know, I guess there's physician-based and there's hospital-based. And then there's the payer-based, right? And then I mean, there's just so many different angles to, to, to attack. Um, not to mention, you know, shared savings versus bundle payments. You know, so can you tell me a little bit about, from a high level, like the different kinds of, like, programs or archetypes within value-based care, and which ones do you think are winning? Which ones do you think, you know, tr- you know in, were, were tried and just didn't work? Um, and, and how do you see, like, you know, it going forward? Yeah, I think ACOs, uh, you know, the last time I looked at the data, it was kind of a wash on, you know, how successful they were. So some... Um, ACOs are highly successful, while another group are just pretty unsuccessful in achieving their goals. Um, you know, some people, well, some data that you look at look like some of the physician-run organizations may be a little bit more successful than hospital-run organizations. Um, you know, there's a number of theories around that, that, you know, hospital-based organizations also have a big building that they have to, you know, support, so maybe there's more inpatient stays. I mean, who knows? I mean, I don't have the data specifically around that, you know, objectively myself to be able to tell you that. Um, Where physician-based organizations are really huge networks of physicians, and they do refer within their network as a general rule, so they really can manage and kind of look at that care if they have sophisticated enough systems. I mean, the downside is is how sophisticated are their systems. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, there's a number of players in the market that are providing that infrastructure, so that's really improving. So I think that model may have a, a lot of value as we go forward. Um, but again, I think we have to avoid the us versus them of, well, it's all about physician groups and anti-hospital because at the end of the day, uh, we all need each other. Yeah, and, and, everyone, and everyone's just trying to auger their patients, right? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, our, our patients should get great care, right? And if mm-hmm. they need to be in the hospital, they need to be in the hospital, and we should not be preventing them from going there. We should be encouraging them to be at the right level of care at the right time and looking for the right outcomes and trying to help manage those outcomes and help a system to get those outcomes versus restricting their access to the care, in my opinion. 
Uh, bundled payments, that's an interesting one. Uh, that's where, based on a given procedure or diagnosis, we're going to pay a bundle for this uh, patient uh, for a given period of time. So depending upon the bundle, maybe 30 days, maybe 90 days. Um, those are innovative uh, in some regards because they brought people together to collaborate who might not have collaborated in the past, right? Like, well, I need a skilled nursing facility. I need a hospital. I need physician groups. And home health. Uh, I yeah. need home health. I need, you know, DME. I need everything under the sun to play together here to make this work, which, you know, those were pretty cool, uh, but very limited in nature. And I think the other thing that was a little bit, uh, well, still is a bit, uh, limiting to those is there's no transparency up front about those costs. And so you're really waiting to see what those are at the end through Medicare claims or Medicare Advantage claims that are then passed back. So those can be a little hard to manage. All of us like to have data as quickly as we can so that we can see what's really happening and make adjustments as we're going to support those changes. So so do you think it's just people are just fattening up the cost for that or...? Or you only get paid so much. I don't think they're fattening up the costs at all. I just think we limit their ability to be successful because you don't know, right? right? So it's like, well, you know, the hospital only billed this and the physician billed this. And how much did home health bill? How much did DME bill? How much did the skilled nursing facility bill? And trying to put all those pieces together when you don't have an integrated system can be pretty complex and really limit the visualization into that so that you could know as a group collectively you're working together to manage these patients and to say hey we have some opportunities to make some adjustments here Uh, maybe you needed to keep them in the hospital a day longer and if you did that then it could cause all these other adjustments and it'd save money for the whole group at the end and we would have made more money on this bundle Uh, and we would have had better outcomes for the individual Sounds like a lot of a lot of chiefs in the kitchen, though, trying to make uh, that decision. And that's the problem, right? And yeah. no transparency. It's one thing if you've got a lot of chiefs in the kitchen, but you have a single recipe you're going by, and everybody can see what the ingredients are and how much is going in. But when you can't see how much is going in until way after it's already baked, well, it's a little late now. Oh, interesting. So the home health doesn't know what's actually going on there, and there's just kind of this lack of, of, uh, of transparency. Okay, that's super interesting. Um. And then, you know, I was just reading that dig. So is Medicare pulling back on those bundle payments right now? Well, they're making adjustments, again, just on what I just, um, you know, stated. Again, you know, what's going to be successful? What's the structure that's going to be successful? And under the Affordable Care Act, it was really kind of an entrepreneurial option, right? Like, here it is. Go figure out what you'd like to try to test out and make work. And now we're going from testing to saying, okay, we've tested, now let's analyze and see what worked, and now let's make adjustments based upon what we've seen mm-hmm. and trying to learn, right, as we're going. Yeah, so um, do you see, I mean, I look at the bundle payments scenario, and it, it almost sounds kind of like a perverted incentive, too, a little bit, and that the fact it kind of sounds like a capitation, like how do we save money through this chain? <laughs> well, it is a capitated model, right? I mean, right. this is all there is, um, and, and that's it. And likewise, typically in those bundles, again, remember they're held accountable for readmissions. They have to pay for all of that. Mm -hmm. And depending upon the bundle, it could be all-cause readmissions or it can only be related-cause readmissions. So it can be quite a mess in trying to, again, how does everybody validate and see if the calculation's correct? Mm -hmm. So we have shared savings, we have bundle payments. What What else is there out there? 
Well, there's full risk models. And so, you know, again, we take on uh, the full risk of the population uh, in some cases. And so when you're taking on full risk, that means you're at risk for everything that happens for that population. And so just as much as you could get a a savings payment or, you know, you made money, you could need to write a check. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, that's, again, where the opportunity lies to really change the system if you, you know, believe that highly in yourself. But the opposite could also be true, right, where you could lose a lot. And so it's really, you know, how do you have the right systems in place? How does a health plan make sure you have the right systems in place? Because they're certainly not looking for people to fail. They're looking for people to do well um, because they don't want to be on the collection side at the end of that, right? I mean, that's how are you going to get that money back? That's really hard. So really, you know, trying to figure that part out, and I think more people are entertaining full risk. But then there are also other restrictions that go on. So in many states, uh, Medicaid doesn't allow the full risk model for some because they call that subcapitation or that, you know, you're really pushing services to somebody else that the health plan is supposed to be taking on. So why are they paying the health plan administrative fees if somebody else is taking that work on? Mm. And trying to make sure that they're not paying more for care than they should have been paying for care. Which, again, is what we hope for them to do, right, is to be the stewards of the money and make sure it's spent well. But causes a lot of iterations and a lot of conversation. Yeah, so basically the health plans are paid to do this, but they're just administrators. They're mm-hmm. not clinicians, right? I mean, some, some health plans have people that reach out, but, you know, the success is probably not that great. And so they're basically outsourced. I think of it kind of like, like state licensing requirements using accreditation agencies, right? Like kind of double paying, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if the original outcome is, is so poor and you're saving money, how do you make an argument that, you know, you shouldn't do that? Well, and I think that's the case, right? I, and I think everybody just trying to make sure that they're holding everybody accountable uh, to make sure you're not intentionally wasting money, right? So mm-hmm. you wouldn't need to dual pay for a service. Um, so let's make sure we're getting the right value and we can measure that value and we're doing it in a way that conserves as much money as possible. It's not lost on any of us, right, at the escalating amount of GDP spent on healthcare in the United States relative to every other country in the world. Yeah, it's ridiculous, right? Was it like 20% or something? Yeah. I mean, as soon as we eclipse that window, then what do we do, right? So we are just generating, um, again, money through a system, but are we getting outcomes? And when you look at us in terms of rankings of outcomes, you know, we're somewhere in the 30s in terms of a nation and our healthcare outcomes. Mm -hmm. But we have third world nations sometimes ahead of us in terms of healthcare outcomes, as sad as that is to say, right? right? And yet we spend a fortune. So it's like, okay, well... What causes that, and how do we change it? Yeah, and it's clearly just a lack of ideas, and then just, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, right? Rome wasn't built in a day, and this has been built for a long period of time. And anytime you go to unwind anything, right, it's a very difficult scenario, and there's lots of people who are playing in this scenario who've built very expensive infrastructures that we all benefit from. Mm -hmm based on this payment structure. So when you say, well, we're going to just turn that upside down and throw it out because this will be better, well, while that sounds great superficially, the reality is you need to support some of those things that you really want. Correct. And, you know, there's shareholders and there's a lot yes. of different stakeholders in, in place. You know, there's an interesting case study uh, that I was, I was listening about, about the, uh, the Oak Street guys, right, and that they had uh, tons of, like, they were hemorrhaging cash, 
and you know they uh, basically built a value-based care model, but they really were doing a fee-for-service testing to see what the outcomes were. And you know they said they had 50% less readmissions, and now they're getting some value-based contracts. And uh, I think they were built built you know at 15 billion or something. Yeah, I mean, huge. What, what do you think that that that's got long-term longevity there? Well, I think, again, the devil's in the details, right? right. So, I mean, that's their it's data. Yeah, yeah, it's a good story. It's yeah. their data. Now, when everybody else stands back and looks at that data, does it hold up? And I think those are the questions that we all have to answer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is to say, well, does that data hold up, and what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, he could be Elon Musk, or he could be Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos, right? That's well, right. <laughs> well, who knows, right? And anything along that spectrum in between. Right. And whose data is it, right? Is it your own self-reported data, or is the health plan validating that data? Right, and you have to have the data to do it. And I think you have to have validated data, right? Mm-hmm. Again, you kind of go back to the bundled payments. And it's not that one source is better than another for data. It's for everybody to have data and to be able to sit down and share about that data and say, okay, well, here's what we see. And the data is a problem, too, because there's no interoperability or very right. limited interoperability. <laughs> very little. Between the, the systems. And it's a mess, right? I mean, again, claims data is really very difficult to deal with. Uh, you have denials and you have resubmissions. You have, you know, just trying to dig through all of that to come up to a single claim that was paid. What was it paid at? Mm-hmm. Was everything paid? What were all the diagnoses? What were all the... CPT codes. I mean, that's really can be a very difficult process. Mm-hmm. Is it unstructured or is it structured data? It's structured data. Okay, so at least you have that. Yes. Oh no, absolutely. And again, it's just all managing the number of iterations of a claim can be quite hard. Mm-hmm. And you think of a system as complex as healthcare, and just how disaggregated the system is, also leads to that much more complexity. Every provider is billing for every single thing. It could be many, many claims for any given piece of service. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have the radiologist, and then you have the radiology procedure. And mm-hmm. Those are not billed together. They're billed separately. Mm-hmm. Then you have the facility fee. That might have been billed by a separate facility. You don't know. Mm-hmm. And then, you, you know, you have the hospital. You have the ED docs. You have all these different people and you got to bring a lot of pieces together to say what happened and how much did this cost. God, it sounds like a nightmare. It, it can be very mind-blowing and, you know, just amazing when you see it, all the different components that have to come together to discern what something actually costs. So, Susan, let's, let's go away from the system, and I'd love to hear more about your backstory and how you became from just a clinician all the way to starting this and, and your journey through that. Sure. Well, so (laughs) I've now been at this for 40 years, as hard as that is to believe. So 40 years in uh, healthcare. But, uh, you know, I really began as a nurse's aide, honestly, went through nursing school and uh, worked up to being an executive at the hospital uh, after being, you know, and spent 20 years working inside of the hospital in the same hospital system, uh, learning all the different components and working through a number of different pieces um, within the system with a lot of support, right? Lots of people within the system giving me support as I was going along my journey to learning to be a leader and understanding, you know, what goes on in healthcare and all the various components. And really in 1999, I just had gotten to a point of feeling like the system was all about how do we eke out more money. And we were losing focus on how do we help people. 
And I think that's what we cannot lose in healthcare is you have to understand that while we may have multiple parties talking about money and how to provide services, you have human beings and their lives at the center of this. And that's really what makes a difference to me is I'm concerned about those human lives in the middle. So I left healthcare, went on to become an entrepreneur. And then when the Affordable Care Act came along, I thought, gosh, maybe we're going to focus on outcomes because, again, through capitation, et cetera, we were not focused on outcomes. We were focusing on how do we manage an investment portfolio, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, and manage that money. And so I thought, well, it was a great opportunity to get back in and see if, you know, what it was like uh, and if we could do something different with that. So I had a transitional care company for a period of time. And thought through that process that, you know, there was a, a different way, that working with the hospitals on readmissions was not the right process, but rather to work directly with the health plans and really put your money where your mouth is and say, hey, I can really generate better outcomes. I'm really focused on individuals who are struggling and having a hard time who are quite ill. And that I believe this other model would make a big difference. And so that's really how I got here. I was very fortunate. Um, Scott Cummings, who's the CEO of Care First, who is a health plan here in Arizona, I, was, I told him about what I was wanting to do, and he was willing to take a risk and to work hard enough to work through what could we put together in a value-based agreement that could make this work. So the team at Care First was really very supportive as we talked through this and worked through this to come up with you know, what we have today. And many iterations thereafter. Awesome. That's, that's such a cool story. So when you're doing a full risk type of scenario, um, you're getting a per patient per month stipend, let's just call mm-hmm. it, right? What basically keeps the lights on and keeps payroll. And then like in your first year, somebody goes to the hospital, like you write a check to that hospital. Well, we don't. So we, uh, and again, there's various models. There's certainly a lot of intermediaries that pay claims. We don't pay claims. Uh, We let those all run through the health plan systems. Uh, We get a data feed from them every month. And through that data feed, then we see what was paid. um, And we know, you know, our own uh, engagements with the members. But our model is very intense, so we typically are, we know where members are at. We have our own EMR system that we've developed internally, so we have a number of ways that we track and keep up with things as well, so that we're able to say, okay, well, this makes sense. So again, back to making sure all parties have data, and you may say, yeah, that makes sense, or it doesn't make sense, um, so that we can then rectify that with the health plans as we go forward. So you're just like a payer within a payer, kind of. Yeah, well, we're a provider. Provider. Within, we're a provider yeah. that's at risk, and so within the payer, so we certainly, and we work very closely with the payers. You know, I would say, you know, we have a very positive, very strong relationship with health plans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, working hard to all of us work together to help our members have a better outcome. Is that, I mean, what's the culture within health plans? I could imagine it being very boring <laughs> to work with those kinds of people. It actually is it. I mean, they're human beings just like you, right? And, you know, they are very concerned about the outcomes for their members and about how they get there. They're not providers, so they're not sitting here trying to say, okay, well, we know how this ought to work. Um, And even though, you know, they have clinical teams with providers on those clinical teams, they're not trying to define business models for providers or delivery models for providers. Mm -hmm. So... You know, actually, you can see some amazing innovation, some interesting programs that they 
come up with that they're looking for providers to partner with them to deliver on. So I, I, I really believe that as an entrepreneur, if you can go to the health plan and you have an appetite to go through a very long process because health plans, by definition, are not very rapid. So, you know, for us, it'll take us over a year to get a contract done, even after we've said, yes, we're going to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you got to go through a lot of iterations and making sure there's a lot of risk underwritten, that everybody agrees on how things are going to be measured, everybody knows what's in, everybody knows what's out. And you still have to have an appetite for, together, you might collaborate enough to change that, mm-hmm. that make, in a way that makes mutual sense. I can honestly tell you that I have never had a health plan who I felt was onerous or difficult or or negative or said, I don't really, you know, I'm not going to do that because it costs too much money and I'm not interested. I've never had any of that. Yeah, but you think about insurance carriers as like the, the worst people on the planet because they're the ones that decline, you know, care and pre-existing conditions. They're marked as like the evil people, right? They are. But again, I think I have the advantage of I get to see both sides of the story, right? Um, you know, sometimes denials are done not because they don't want the, somebody to have care, but the information submitted wasn't the information they needed. Uh, now, can there be better communication? Yeah, certainly there could be uh, better communication. Who owns that? Is it owned by the provider? Is it owned by the health plan? Well, I think it's beholding upon both of us, right, to try to figure that out. And to say, okay, well, I submitted this, and I thought that was what you were asking. No, I was asking this. But a lot of times in healthcare, we have pushed some of those instances off to individuals who may or may not have a level of clinical knowledge to decipher what was being told to us, mm. to be able to provide what we needed. Uh, again, I have never had a health plan say, no, I'm not going to do that, Susan. It's way too expensive. Um, I have had them say, well, generally, our process is we do A or B, and this is how that's done. For us to be able to collaborate around, well, I know, but we kind of need C, and here's why we need C, and how would we get to C? Okay, well, you got to do A and B, and then if neither of those work, we can try C. Okay, well, I get it. Um, yeah, I think it's kind of the same process I use with my children, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know what you would like to have, but let's see if these other things can work first. Yeah. and. Um, you know, again, I think at the end of the day, we all want that because we want the health plans to be solvent so that they can pay for everybody's health care. And if we just threw it all away uh, and said whatever, you know, anybody says is needed is the right thing, we wouldn't be in the right place. And that's oh, we'd, why be, we'd be in a worse position. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the providers would definitely take advantage of that as a whole, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's why we're in the 30s in terms of health care outcomes versus, you know, much better based on the per capita spend. So if we all did things that were wise, we wouldn't be there, right? <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And so tell me a little bit about um, kind of your, your patient pool. I mean, you said they were, you know, um, probably the most expensive. So, like, what does that mean, and, like, how, how, does, how does catalytic care for them? Yeah, so, again, our individuals typically have had many events that have occurred, um, you know, meaning that and generating a situation in which they need a lot more care to help them get uh, to better outcomes and maybe even just to get stabilized enough so that they have a foothold to begin to move forward. And so, you know, we work with the health plans. There's a number of different algorithms that are put in place to identify who the individuals are that we may serve. With that being said, uh, we then engage with them, and our model is, um, I'd say, structured more like a house call provider group, but we're an integrated house call provider group. So we have nurse practitioners on the physical health side. We have therapists on the behavioral health side. 
We have what we call care coordinators and clinical liaisons, uh, community health workers. Those are all out in the field seeing individuals in their homes, um, identifying what's going on there and what mm-hmm. do they really need, and helping them to understand that what the options are. So sometimes individuals will believe, well, I can't pay my electric bill, and it's 115 degrees outside, so... I guess I'll just do without electricity and hope I don't, you know, swelter to death here. Versus to say, well, but there's other options. So how do we help them see those other options, understand what the programs are? And, you know, I'd say a lot of our work is very simple. It's helping individuals see that there is a way to get to yes instead of hearing no all day long. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the, our model is built around you don't say no. So mm-hmm. we never tell somebody no. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ways to get to other options without using no. Mm-hmm. So just as I was saying with the health plans, I've never been told no. Here, mm-hmm. a, let's try A and B first. If that doesn't work, let's try C. Uh, and we use a lot of that same work with our members, right, of saying, okay, well, how do we help you figure out what the options are? And after you've told somebody no for so long, then they lose empowerment. They lose any, any desire to make another phone call or try again. So we take a lot of that on to get started so individuals can see they can get some support and help and they can begin this journey to get better. Um, Take away all that fear and anxiety, which causes us to be much worse. Mm -hmm. It's hard on our minds and it's hard on our our physical health. And so how do we do that? And we do all that work with them. Again, we're showing up. They don't need to call and ask us for a lot of things. We're seeing it. And we say, oh, I see that you don't have enough food to eat. Let's talk about how, you know, where are the local food banks? How can we help you get some food, make sure you're not hungry, so that you can be stable enough to think about some other things as we go forward. And, you know, we work as an integrated team, so all of our work is delivered in an integrated model. And that's not a co-located model. That's a weekly staffing model with everybody working together every single day on every member and their outcome thinking about their mental health, their physical health, and their social stability as a team. Mm-hmm. And then so these, these people would actually have a primary care physician that you would keep updated, and, you know, even yes. though they, they would write the script, and but, like, essentially you would just coordinate with the doctor on behalf of the patient. Absolutely, and we can write scripts, and we do, but we are going to do that by and let the physician know, no matter if it's their specialist or their primary care provider. We're not replacing any of those. And we're delivering that uh, care so that we have that urgent intervention at that moment in time. And then letting the member know that, you know, when you go in to see your provider, they may decide to change this blood pressure medicine we just ordered to something else. But this will get you over until you can get in to see him or her and get the care that, you, you know, they feel like is best aligned with your total care. We're going to always try to make that call, but, you know, some, they're very busy people, so they may or may not have a chance to take that call before we've already done another intervention to try to help the member to be okay. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's something that I've been, you know, reading. I've been, you know, kind of diving a little bit more into uh, healthcare themes lately. And, you know, I've just seen so much written. There's a New York Times article, I think, the last couple of weeks about how just the lack of community support is detrimental to, you know, Medicaid outcomes, right? And, the, you know, like the, the, just housing in general and paying for housing can have an incredible difference in healthcare spend. You want to talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. I'd say it's, um, you know, again, well, we all have to have our basic needs met first. And having a safe place to lay our head uh, makes all the difference in the world. 
Um, you know, I met with Tom Litwick, Litwicky from El Pueblo Community Services a few weeks ago, and he said, you know, and they do transitional housing in Pima County. And he said, you know, Susan, we bring people in and we give them a bed, some air conditioning, food to eat. He said, There's, you know, you wait about two weeks before you see what the baseline is for this person. And that's how detrimental it is to be out with no housing mm-hmm. in the elements uh, and struggling to know what you're, you know, am I going to have my next meal? Where am I going to get it? Am I going to be safe here? I think that tells you something. It takes a couple of weeks of unwinding before you can actually be at baseline. And, you know, our members and and I think our general society, especially as you see inflation increasing, uh, you know, it's nothing for us to see rent going up 30 to 50 percent instantaneously for individuals and how destabilizing that is. And you put them out into homelessness and they're totally unstable now. And the system is going to have to pick up for that somewhere. So do you take that in in ER utilization, inpatient utilization, which is very, very expensive? No, you can't do that. It would be hemorrhaging money. Yeah, $5,000 for an ED visit. Well, I pay for a lot of housing for $5,000. So even as a company, you know, we will help people with their rent. We will make sure we seek other resources to help with rent. You try to do everything you can to help people stay stable. So that that isn't the case. And, you know, we see huge changes in people's outcome when you can house them in safe housing. So when you were saying, like, the, the couple weeks to kind of, you know, unwind, you know, the health, mental health, you know, spiritual health of people that are, like, without, you know, any kind of home, are you saying that, you know, it's it's very difficult to accurately give a and give, diagnose, give, and communicate a care plan with somebody that's homeless? Oh, absolutely. You need them to be stable in order to actually convey a care plan and to make sure that it gets delivered upon. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can create the scenario for you. Think of yourself who has had no sleep for weeks. None. Mm-hmm. What state of mind are you in? Not good. And, you know, I'm not going to talk to you about your blood pressure. How interested are you? <laughs> not at all. I'm not interested now, and I'm all rested. <laughs> well, now let's couple this with, uh, I don't, you haven't eaten. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've gotten a little bit to eat every day, but, you know, maybe, maybe a meal, maybe a little less than a meal every day. Mm-hmm. Now, how interested are you? Mm-hmm. Not at all, right? Exactly. And now it's hot outside, or it's really cold outside, or whatever the scenario is. Uh, and you're always on the move because you're not safe. You don't know, you know, am I going to be bothered here? Who's going to bother me? What's going to happen to me? So I'm always in this, you know, my mind staying alert and awake trying to make sure I stay safe. So you can see that would really wear on you after a while. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So what's next for Catalytic Health Partners? Well, we're really excited. We have some opportunities to look at some other states, and uh, we're actively in that process. So uh, yeah, really excited to see can, how do we continue to scale this model. We've been very successful with the model throughout the whole state of Arizona. And, you know, just excited to be able to bring like-minded providers and staff together to deliver on this care and seeing how much more we can, you know, spread it for people to get great care. Can you tout your numbers, your outcome numbers? Well, it depends on the population, but, you know, we, we save uh, more than 30% on the population in the first year as a general rule. And, and our outcomes are very significant on every measure. That's a lot of money. <laughs> That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. 
And, you know, it's amazing. It's not really, you know, to me, it's not about the money as much as it is about the person's lives that you are changing and helping people to truly get to a better place and always to be that safe place that somebody can return to. So, you know, again, we don't close the door on people. After they've graduated from our service at the end of a year, they can call us anytime, and we're happy to help. Just this past weekend, I got a call from a member's husband who was our member three years ago. Mm-hmm. He needed help. And you say, okay, always happy to help. And you, you provide that extra help so you can help people rem- you know, maintain their stability. Yeah, how is the how is like the recidivism knowing that human behavior is just so hard to change, right? And then you know your program is a year long, so like, what is the kind of like what's the kind of the relapse rate of people who kind of need to kind of go back into the system versus those who like get a stable footing? Yeah, I mean it's really hard for us to measure because we don't have all the health plan data, and sure. you would really need that. But you know, I can look at the numbers of people referred back to us. So again, these are data systems; they're not humans looking at data necessarily. Uh, and we'll have less than you know ten percent of people ever referred back to us, even over many years later. So that's incredible because these are like the most probably infirmed people from a from a health perspective, and they probably go to the hospital back every kind of couple of weeks, right? Yeah. Well, again, in various scenarios, right? They they've been in the hospital a lot, uh, been inpatient in a number of different environments a lot. Um, so, but you know, it really works. It works well, even on the provider side. Like you see, I mean, I was a healthcare CEO for by accident for a couple of years. <laughs> and, you know, you see what we call them the frequent flyers and they would come in and the providers, you know, they were just kind of sick of taking care of them. And I think there was an attitude of like, oh, he just, he's not compliant, right? <laughs> you know, like he's not compliant. He doesn't know. He doesn't, he's not taking us seriously. He's wasting our time. You know, we're going to get hit for this again. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really sad. It is. I mean, that's, um, that's something that really just kind of rubs me all the wrong direction. Non-compliant with what? Your plan for them? I don't know. How many plans do you follow that somebody else makes for you? Right. A zero. And again, I think it's one of the things that's really wrong with healthcare is we've lost our way a bit in sitting down and talking to another person and letting them tell you what they want to work on mm-hmm. and what's important to them. We feel like in you know, 10 or 15 minutes that we have the right to dictate to you, here's what's wrong, here's what you're going to do, and here's what I expect you to do about it, without any conversation about, well, is this important to you? Would it be something you're willing to do? Is it something you're able to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, what might be your barriers to accomplishing it? Um, and trying to understand. So we don't really spend any time trying to understand. And that's really something that Catalytic does totally differently. Yeah, we're focused on the member and their goals. We don't set goals for members. Members set their own goals. What do they want to do? And that's How even if they get. Them? That's even if they get their care plan. I mean, yeah. it's written. It has to be right. But right. it's like, was it actually ever conveyed? Well, and and did they have any contribution to it? Right. right? I mean, other than you know, I told you to take these three meds. Okay. Okay. Well, they don't even know what those three meds are, let alone how much they're going to cost, or mm-hmm. you know what the consequences are, how they're going to make them feel. I mean, you kind of go down the list. So we really sit down with our members and let them tell us, what would you like to work on? And then we figure out, okay, well, that's what you want to work on. And what are the boundaries? You know, maybe they don't want to take medicine. Okay, Mm -hmm. well, then what else can you do? How more, you know, can you become creative in helping people find other ways? Mm -hmm. 
And it's not easy. I mean, maybe easier to write a script for something, but the reality is it is their health. It is their life. Mm -hmm. And so they have the right to tell you how they're going to live that life and what they want to do about it. Awesome. Susan, you're an absolute inspiration, and the world needs more of you. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Anyway, thank you, everybody, for listening to the Capital Stack. Susan, a couple of canned questions we do at the end of every show. What is your favorite book? Oh, wow. That's a hard one. Uh, my favorite book. Well, I, <laughs> this is going to sound weird, but I really like the concept of simple numbers. Um, so I love reviewing that because mm-hmm. I think it keeps me on track, not, not even from just a business point of view, but personally in terms of how I think about things and mm-hmm. keeping things simple uh, versus complex. Nice. I was expecting like CMS guideline thirty four five two. I don't know anything about those. <laughs> uh, what is the best piece of business advice you've ever received? Uh, so the best piece of business advice I've ever gotten in my life, which I still use today, and I mentioned earlier that you know you don't need to be a hog. Don't need know? to be a hog. Pigs get slaughtered. That's right. So you know that's not a. You don't need to go to the table being fair, open, and honest, and uh, things will work out. I like it. Everybody, again, that is the Capital Stack. You can listen to our podcast every Tuesday. We're on all major platforms, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes. Please like it, subscribe, you know, uh, share it with a friend, and we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.